The word compromise is a word that can be very positive, or it can be real negative. <laughs> it's positive when you think of two people that are in a disagreement, but you hear that they have compromised, right? And that kind of means that each one gave in a little bit and they met in the middle. They compromise. Maybe we can reach a compromise. And it's kind of used synonymously with the word agreement. We reached an agreement. The word can be very negative, though, if you hear, for instance, that a semi-truck perhaps was too tall for an overpass, and as it was going through, the top of it kind of slammed into the, the overpass, and, and you'll hear on the news that investigators are coming to check out the structure and to make sure that nothing was compromised in its safety. I had a compromise that was negative that happened this week. My wife's birthday is coming up on Tuesday. She works on Friday. I don't. And I thought, I'm going to surprise her with a cake. And so about three weeks ago, I knew she liked chocolate. My daughter loves chocolate. And I thought, I'm going to make her a death by chocolate cake. I'm convinced if I Google search, I'll find a death by chocolate cake recipe. And I did. And it was not for the faint of heart. I thought when I read that, not for the faint of heart, that it meant not for, you know, those that don't like a lot of chocolate. Because it's death by chocolate. No, it meant not for the faint of heart when it comes to chefs. And so, three weeks out, I'm excited. I can't wait for the big day. I wait till Friday morning when they're all at school and work to go to the store and buy the ingredients. Now, this particular recipe was the kind that was very particular in the ingredients. You had to have espresso powder. It wasn't just enough that you have like the Hershey chocolate, you know, the baking chocolate, the type that's real bitter if you don't add sugar to it, but you had to have Dutch chocolate. Um, you couldn't just use vanilla. You had to use the real vanilla, and it turns out they're not just giving that away <laughs> at the store. Apparently, there's a vanilla bean shortage. Have you heard about this? Oh, Yeah. So like what used to be a $14 bottle is now like a $39 bottle. I went four places and finally found one the size of a, of a bottle of eye drops, and it was $10. And I bought it because I love my wife, and it's her birthday, and I want this to be the perfect cake. And I want you to know I did pretty well, actually, if I say so myself. Um, it, it wasn't the type of recipe that said put in a cup of this or two tablespoons of that. Everything was like in ounces. So I had to get out the actual measuring thing and the bowl and, and set it to zero and measure all these ingredients. And I had to keep an eye on the cake. And I had to do periodic tests with sticking the fork in it to make sure it wasn't dry or that it wasn't still moist and I took it out at the at just the right moment and they were beautiful I mean they really were they looked a little bit like muffins you know they were kind of but they were just beautiful chocolate dark chocolate cakes there were two kinds of icing um, the first icing was a light brown color and it was cream cheese and butter and powdered sugar and lots of chocolate and and then the other thing that was to go on the top of that icing was a layer of, is it ganache? Is that how you pronounce it? Dark chocolate ganache, which is basically a, a tar, <laughs> a chocolate tar that you pour over the top of this thing. And I set these two cakes on the cooling rack there on the island, and I turned around and I went to work making the, the icing, and, and the icing does not normally go well for me. I'm not a baker, but this icing was beautiful. I mean, it was fluffy and looked like it did in the picture. This is going to be great. And I turned around and I looked at the cakes, and there was one step I chose to omit. 
I was supposed to wrap them in cellophane and put them in the refrigerator for cooling. I don't need to cool those cakes. I don't have time for that. I need to be on the road by 3 o'clock. That's where I had to be. So, so I just skipped that step. Well, as I turned around, put the first cake on the table, all of a sudden, sides of it began to fall off. Oh, no. This is not good. And so I quickly grabbed the icing. I thought, I'll use this icing and patch it together. <laughs> and the first landslide went back on pretty good. She'll never know. And then, there was a, then the other side fell. And then the other side fell. It's turned into an I Love Lucy episode, 2019 edition. And I, it got really bad. And so finally, I mean, I had this huge mess. And it's starting, it's starting to take on the appearance of a volcano. And I think, well, you know, I've heard of volcano cake. We'll just change the name of it. And so that'll work. And so I'm taking spatulas, and I mean, I'm going to town with this icing, trying to get it all on there. And then I remember, I got that ganache syrup stuff. It'll help. And I take it over, and I pour this tar on there. And I mean, I'm going over it. And for like an hour, I'm going back and forth on this thing. And it went from being a, a beautiful layered cake to a volcano to now suddenly it resembled a giant junior mint <laughs> that someone had pushed their finger on in the middle kind of thing when my daughter gets home from school there's something about 14 year old girls they are blessed with the gift of extreme honesty I love to hear her laugh <laughs> and there was lots of it <laughs> I mean, she just, it was one of those hit your knees kind of laughter, and she just, and then I showed her the picture. Well, it was supposed to look like this, and then she just, I mean, tears were flowing, and Shauna came, and they both kind of joined, and Shauna's like, what is it? <laughs> and I'm like, happy birthday. <laughs> it's your death by chocolate cake. One step, one step, wrap it in cellophane, put it in the fridge, and by Bypassing that one step, I compromised the structure of the cake. We're still going to eat it. I think it's still fairly tasty. If you got a spoon <laughs> and a dust buster for all the pieces, parts that fall off, but it's good tasting cake, um, but it's been compromised. Today we're going to talk about compromise. Today is our third letter in the letters from Jesus through the Apostle John to the churches of Asia Minor. And this is going to go to the church at Pergamum. Some of your Bibles may say Pergamos, or, uh, but, but Pergamum uh, is what the English Standard Version uh, calls this particular town. And the problem that was going on in this early first century church is that of compromise, I wrote this bottom line when I very first started studying for the passage, and as I reviewed it on Saturday, Friday and Saturday, I thought to myself, I don't know, that's a pretty bold statement, but I'm going to stick by it. Here's what I wrote. Compromised faith is more dangerous than abandoned faith because it's so subtle that we don't know it's happening. If somebody deliberately chooses, maybe they've had a bad experience uh, and they're upset with God and they walk away from the faith, they know they've walked away from the faith, right? If someone takes a class and perhaps there's a liberal professor and they're given just one side of macro uh, evolution and they begin to think, yeah, I think we all did. We just uh, accidentally evolved from amoebas to what we are today. And, and they decide there's no creator God and they choose to walk away from the faith. They know they've walked away from the faith. 
If somebody has that rock-bottom experience, they make poor choices, they get caught, and it's costing them dearly, and they're embarrassed, and they're upset, and they choose to just kind of stay away from God, stay away from his bride, the church, they know they've walked away. But the bigger concern is for the person that has slipped away from God and doesn't know he or she has. Because the other person can get, at some point, broken and humbled and can repent and come back to the Lord. But the person who has compromised their faith, they still have the chocolate cake and it still tastes good, <laughs> has forgotten what the picture was supposed to look, what it was supposed to look like in the picture thereof. And I think that there is a great risk, especially in the American church today, to suffer from compromised faith, where we go through the motions and we feel like Christians. I mean, we're still, our name is on the roll. We still have a, a church affiliation, but we've compartmentalized our faith so much that we kind of check into and check out of worship, and it's just something that we do for good measure. Our attendance may even look good. We may, we may even participate in, in something extracurricular, a Bible study or something of that sort. And we feel like, hey, we are, we are followers of Jesus, but our faith is compromised. And we need to know when that's happened. It's not a new analogy. I'm sure you've heard it before, the frog in the kettle. Supposedly, if you put a frog in a kettle and you begin to heat the water up very slowly, very gradually, you know, the frog kind of swims around and kind of enjoys the little hot tub that you've got going on there for it. And you can gradually turn that up a degree every hour, and the frog will know no difference until he boils to death. We're more inclined to get used to the dark than to just exit our faith abruptly. So let's look at what John writes and in five short verses of Revelation 2, verses 17, 12 through 17, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. And by the way, the, the word for angel means messenger. And a lot of people believe this is, this is like the herald, the messenger who, who reads the letter to the people. Write this to, the, to the, the messenger, the angel, to the church at Pergamum. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also... You have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone. And a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In verse 13, Jesus referred to Pergamum as the place of Satan's throne. Actually, he throws in there twice. He, it's a little repetitive. He says again, where Satan dwells. It's really a compliment because he says, hey, look, I know 
where you are dwelling, where you are living, where Satan is. This is his throne, and his throne means this is a kingdom for him, where he is ruling and where people are submitting to him. The people of Pergamum, they were worshiping the divine Augustus. Grounded Christians focus on three, on these two R's. On these, um, the first R is that of repentance. A grounded Christian knows how to repent. I know you have to be tired of hearing me talk about what the word repentance means. It seems like I talk about it a lot, but it's basically the Greek word for U-turn. Metanoia, it just means I was going this way, and now I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to go the complete opposite direction. I used to live for me, as Frank Sinatra and Elvis sang, I did it my way. But you turned around, thank you, and you head in the complete opposite way, and you do it his way. You live for him. And there are times in our life beyond our initial repentance where we're born again into Christ in which we need to really repent of certain ways that we are living or ways we are not living but should be living. The first thing with repentance is you have to beware of the danger. I know where you live where Satan's throne is, he says. And he even gives them an example where Antipas, my faithful witness, was put to death for his faith, martyrdom, right there in front of everybody. Where Satan dwells. Now, Pergamum was 15 miles inland, and it did not have the ability to have very good uh, uh, trade like you would at a port city. Pergamo, the name for Pergamum, means citadel. It was the well-fortified, safe place of the capital city of Mysia. Pergamum was the pride of the Greeks. Oh, they were proud of, of Pergamum for many reasons. Their architecture was beautiful, and they were known for their buildings. They were a center for politics and religion, lots of culture, lots of education, lots of sophistication. It was a place of art and religion. But more than anything else, they were known for their library. Now, again, if you're first century uh, A.D., uh, something like a library is about the best thing you could be known for. And they had 200,000 books, one commentary said. The Baker commentary uh, reads that the library had over a million volumes. It was a library to be envied. Now, my take on Pergamum, you know, when we talked about Ephesus, the first letter, we talked about this busy uh, port city with lots of business and lots of uh, economics going on. It was thriving. And then last week's city, Smyrna, we talked about it kind of being more like the bedroom community. So like you kind of have Indianapolis and then you have uh, Boone County in the outskirts around there where people kind of live, but then they go into the city to work and to make money. And then you have, you have the really kind of upscale Pergamum. And in the midst of all of this wonderful culture and sophistication was spiritual corruption. John describes it in Revelation 2 as a center for satanic activity. <laughs> Sometimes when we think about satanic activity, I mean, be honest, what comes to mind? We think, we think Halloween, right? And we picture Satan, he's this red devil with horns, and he's got an ugly face that's scary, and he's got, you know, a, a a tail and a, a pitchfork, and, and nothing could be more contrary to the truth because he's actually very beautiful and very wise, cunning, deceiving. And Satan was having a heyday in this wonderful, beautiful 
city. Anything that distracts us from worshiping Jesus exclusively as the Son of God is the work of Satan. There were three temples uh, there in Smyrna, Zeus, Dionysus, and Athene. Pergamum was best known for the the medical Greek god Asclepius. Um, In AD 160, there was a medical center there that was kind of like what it would be like for us today with the the Mayo Clinic or or the Cleveland Clinic of its day. It was known as a place where you could come and you could find what you needed. These are the smartest people. There was a, a great altar to Zeus that jutted out of the top of the citadel. And the followers of Jesus did not deny their faith in him, even when a very well-known Christian was martyred. With what happened uh, to this martyr, they still kept their faith. And Jesus c- commends them for that. I can imagine what it would be like, perhaps, in modern America. What if Billy Graham had been martyred for his faith? And then you were put to the test. Would you deny Christ? Seeing what happened to that great leader? Fortunately, that did not happen to Billy Graham. But what would you have done had it happened? They were strong in that regard, and yet they were failing in other ways deep beneath the surface where you could not see them slipping, gradually getting used to the dark, further and further away from Christ. These would be the people that are good people. Good people are the hardest people to win to Christ. Did you know that? I mean, people who have really blown it big time and they know they need a Savior are the easiest people to present the gospel to them. But it's hard to to win good people to Christ. Well-educated people, uh, maybe they give to the United Way, they mow their grass regularly, they're good to their kids. If they have a pet, their pet is on regular routine schedules with the vet and so forth, and they obey the homeowners association rules. But they don't see a need for Christ, perhaps. Good people. And I, I, I figure Pergamum was full of good people and maybe people who even went through the motions of worship. And it seemed like... They had a strong faith. We were talking in the car, not to throw any uh, fake uh, families under the the bus, but I said, you know, it kind of reminds me of Ward and June Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver, the great American family. You don't hear them talk a lot about the Lord on the show. You don't see them praying with their children. But they go to church every Sunday because that's what you're supposed to do. If you're a good American family, you go to church on Sunday. But we don't see it being deep in here. And a family like that would be a hard family to, to, to make wake up to a compromised faith. The second thing that it takes for repentance is to learn from history. That's a repetitive thing through these these letters. And here again, Jesus gives the example. He says, remember what, uh, what it looked like when the Israelites were led away to the worship of Balaam? And they actually enjoyed eating food that had been sacrificed to the idols of, uh, uh, to other idols instead of to worship God alone? And remember how God was repulsed by that. Tom Friskney writes, idolatry of any sorts results in immorality. Impure life matches impure doctrine. Leon Morris writes, feasting on sacrificial meat and licentious conduct were usual accompaniments of the worship of idols, both in the Old and the New Testament times. The teaching going on in Pergamum was reminiscent of what happened in Balaam's day. 
And here we have people in this passage that were given over to following the Nicolaitans, just like in Ephesus. Finally, we have to eradicate spiritual toxins. Jesus has a double-edged sword for a tongue that can bring both protection for the faithful and judgment for the unfaithful. Frisney says it was a, a, salu, a salutary reminder that there is a, a power greater than that of any earthly governor. And the people in Pergamum needed to be reminded of that. And I wonder for us today, do we ever fall in, into that trap where we, we think that we're following Christ, but we've become so superficial. We, we buy in to the political correctiveness of the day that we're afraid to even say the name of Jesus in public. I was so touched and moved by the worship set this morning. All of the times that we, we were able to say the name of Jesus and sing praises to him. Have you noticed that even in Christian movies today... There can be a great message, but there's more emphasis on the positivity than there is on the power of praying in Jesus' name. And the prayers on the TV by people based on real stories where you know they had to have prayed in the name of Jesus in real life. But on television, they'll just say, amen, and Jesus isn't even mentioned. Yeah, I gotta tell you, that's a hate crime for me. If you're going to disrespect my Lord in such a way that his name can't be said in public as other religions can. I don't appreciate that kind of discrimination, quite honestly. And I'm proud to be called a Christian. I am proud to be associated with the name of Jesus. I am proud to pray in the name of Jesus. That's where the power is. And he is the Son of God. He is our Lord and Savior. And he is the one that every time we come into this place, we ought to be singing praises to him. Not just singing songs and going through the motion, but we ought to be worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And it starts by eradicating the spiritual toxins. James 4.2 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Romans 13.4 says, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We have a gracious and forgiving Savior. But make no mistake about it. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we should remain on his side. There's a great reward that comes for those uh, who do. Uh, the first of them, three things are mentioned. One is hidden manna, provision. Some believe that there was missing manna. That was the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant, that Jeremiah had hidden it, and, and, and that's what some people uh, hold to in that. The other possibility is that Jesus is using here a, uh, in, in this letter to Pergamum a metaphor to describe the provisions for his journeying people. As you journey along, Jesus will give you what you need. If you need courage, have courage. The Lord is with you. So don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid when you're at that restaurant and, and you want to have prayer with your family before your meal and give thanks to God. Don't put on a show. Don't do it to be seen by men. But, but do pray and don't be afraid of that. You can own a, a Bible. And as I understand, as long as it's in your desk or it's in your locker at school, that's perfectly legal and you can do that. Don't let anybody take your rights away from you. Don't let anybody scare you to where you don't want to speak up and acknowledge that you know Jesus. We have gotten so wimpy. It's no wonder that our young people in America today are turning to drugs and to crime and to other religions and incredible fanaticism and into all kinds of terrorism because we have lowered the bar for Christianity so much. Who would want to be one? Jesus is real. He is the Son of God, and we need to start acting like it. And we need to stand up. For our rights and not just give them all away. John 4, 31 through 34 says this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, uh, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat and you do not know about it. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Our food, our manna, our bread for this journey of faith. The Lord is the provider of it. The second thing he says he'll give them is a white stone acceptance. Throughout history, white stones have oftentimes been used in a variety of ways, but always they have some kind of acceptance that goes with them. Amulets to ward off demons, tokens uh, for one's acquittal at a trial, tickets to victors at athletic games for the public festival and followed the, uh, that followed the game, or votes of approval. Even today, sometimes in clubs or organizations, there's the black marble or the white marble. And in this case, you're given a white stone. If you remain faithful and you follow the Lord Jesus, you have nothing to fear. He'll give you what you need for the day, your daily manna. Remember the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> And he'll give you a white stone of acceptance. If the whole world rejects you, God will not. And guess which one matters? <laughs> give me Jesus. <laughs> give me Jesus. Nothing else matters. If you lose the Lord, you have lost everything. But with him is a white stone of acceptance. And on that stone... This gets kind of personal, you know. On the white stone is a new name that only he knows and you know. <laughs> Which, as I read about that and I tried to figure out, is there more to this? What, what does it mean? Um, the word for new, kainos, uh, is an emphasis on the quality of that name. This new name is a quality kind of, of, of name. The name gives, him, gives the person his identity, his relationship, his power. And together, these pictures, uh, the full blessing for the overcomer, evil does not triumph, writes Tom Friskney. Revelation 5.9 says, they sang a, a, a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 3.12 says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. Even Jesus is said to have on his thigh there, Lord of lords and King of kings. And the Lord of lords and the King of kings has given you a new name. Leon Morris says, in antiquity, the name was widely held to sum up what the man stood for. It represented his character. It stood for the whole man. Here, then, the new name represents a new character. There are several scriptures, too many for me to quote. In fact, I found seven of them where it talks about being made new in Christ. But I think the one that I... Uh, that I would focus on the most, and it ties in with our, our sermon today and our passage and our book, Revelation. Revelation 21.5, Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. There's no more weeping, no more crying, no more mourning, no more death. The old things have passed away, and he says, Behold, I make all things new. And the word there for new means whole and complete and not compromised. How real is your faith? How authentic is it? It's possible to have your name on a church roll, to be a member of a religious uh, denomination of some sort, and still not be walking with the Lord Jesus. Do you know him or do you just know about him? Does he know you because he created you and because he's known you since before you were born? Or does he know you because he has a relationship with you whereby you have been saved by the blood of his son Jesus and he's put within you his Holy Spirit who he longs for? Does he know you? This morning, as we continue in our worship, as we... As we sing our praises, I I pray for each one of us today that we'll do some business with God, that we'll be transparent, that we'll maybe open up to a, a close friend in the faith and say, I'm not walking with the Lord like I once did, like I still should, and I need to come back. I'm not as close to the Lord as I once was, and I know he's not moved, but I've drifted, and I need to come back. We need to ask one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, hold me accountable and help me. Let's study God's word together. Let's sing his praises together. Let's, Let's really worship him. And in our time that remains today, I pray that we'll do just that. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your amazing love. I thank you for Jesus, your son. I thank you, God, for these rather pointed and honest letters these memos from your son to his church that God applies so much to us today that, Father, our faith would be real and genuine and others would want to be a part of it because it's not easy. And and it's not just going through the motions kind of, of activity, but, God, it means something. God, I pray for you to have your way in this time. May your Holy Spirit move freely, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.